Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. That's found on page 1082 in your pew Bible. And that's Acts 2, verse 42 through 47. If you are visiting with us today and you don't own a Bible, that Bible, that black Bible in front of you is our gift to you. We hope you will take it home and you will find life and light in it as all of us here have found. As you're turning, let's open with a word of prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in 2018, uh, this new craze really started taking shape and taking form. It's, it's the $99 DNA kit. Has anyone in here done one of those, a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com DNA kit? Yeah, and so, you know, we couldn't have predicted 50, 60 years ago that we're, for $99, we're going to be able to send off some saliva and find out where we came from. In fact, the commercials are pretty cute and funny. The, the one guy on the 23andMe commercial is, is there, in, and, and he's saying, after he, he did the test, he says, well, I'm going to have to trade my lederhosen in for a kilt. Yeah. He thought he was of German heritage, and he found out he was really Irish. And, and so there's some cute, funny things, but there's something about us that we want to know our heritage and, and our DNA. Like, where do we come from? Like, and, and how does that inform who we are? And, and it's, a, it's a big part of all of it. But also uh, there's a side effect that comes with this 23andMe and Ancestry.com DNA stuff is that we find out where we come from and we find out a heritage that maybe we were unexpected. In fact, um, They've, there's support groups that exist out there now for people who have done these DNA kits and come to find out that one of their parents they thought their entire lives was their parent is not. And so one woman, um, Cynthia, said that she used to look in the mirror and say, well, I'm half my dad and I'm half my mom. I get this from my dad and I get this from my mom. And then when she did this test and she found out that her dad wasn't her dad, she didn't know who she was anymore. She was devastated. And so she went searching for her biological dad, but both of uh, who she considered her parents her whole life had passed and so had her biological father. And so she didn't really ever figure that out. And so she was holding intention like, who am I and where do I come from? See, as, a, as Christians, we know we come from Jesus Christ, that God prepared salvation and Jesus bestowed it upon us and that it's available for all. And it's because people witnessed and, and God sent the Holy Spirit upon us that he called us from the world to himself. But we also have a DNA as a church. We have a heritage and a history. Here at First Christian Church of the Beaches, we have a, we have a local heritage and history in that there was a First Christian Church in downtown Jacksonville and some people lived out on the beach. And in 45, they got together and what is now the, the Garden Club, uh, they began meeting there and they built that place as the first location. And then in 63, we moved here and, and, and we've always been a church on the beach witnessing to Jesus Christ, um, making disciples, celebrating the gospel. But we have a deeper history than that as well. You know, that's, that's like me saying, well, I know uh, part of me is Mennonite because my dad was Mennonite as a kid growing up. But it goes much deeper and further back than that. We don't just uh, come from nowhere. We, we have a heritage. In fact, First Christian Church of the Beaches Disciples of Christ has a heritage in what's called the Restoration Movement. 
And the restoration movement began in the 1800s during the Second Great Awakening in the United States. And in fact, in 1801 in King Ridge, Kentucky, there was a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor named Barton W. Stone. And he held what was called the Cane Ridge Revival, in which tens of thousands of people came out into the wilderness of Kentucky to hear people preach. And, and there were so many people, the tree stump he preached on wasn't big enough, they began building platforms, and he began inviting the Baptist preacher and the Methodist preacher. And is, that's, that's one of our birthplaces, is this Cane Ridge revival, in which as people heard the word, they would then fall out in the spirit, and they would be fallen out for sometimes hours upon days. And this revival lasted a week, and while it's been tried to replicate since, it's never truly happened again. It was this movement of the Spirit, and it led Barton Stone to write the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And he believed that, that they shouldn't be called Presbyterians, but we should be called Christians. And so that denominations shouldn't really exist, that Christ wanted this spirit, he wanted to restore to the New Testament church, that Christ had this spirit of unity of the body of Christ, of the church. And all the while over in Virginia and West Virginia was a father and son named Thomas Campbell and Alexander Campbell, and they, and they called their followers uh, disciples of Christ. And they too had this same idea that Barton Stone, and then in 18. 30s on a handshake deal, the, the movements kind of join together and it becomes the Stone-Campbell movement known as the Restoration Movement for their desire to restore the church to the New Testament understanding. And so Alexander Campbell doesn't show up to a meeting. He gets elected the first president of the Restoration Movement. That's part of our heritage. If we have meetings and you don't show up, you're going to get elected. That's where it comes from. Right? It's, it's part of who we are. But, but th there came some, some, some sayings for these Christians and these disciples of Christ that gathered together that identified who they are, that there's no book but the Bible, and that there's no creed but Christ. Not saying that creeds don't have, aren't valid and that they don't make all correct theological points, but that they are not needed as a test of fellowship. Rather, Christ is the only one needed to be confessed for people to be part of the fellowship. And then finally they said, we're Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. And so there was this movement, this restoration movement of both unity and restoration, that they held these things in tension of unity, of being one body, and of restoring to the New Testament church, recognizing there was essentials added upon that. Well, out of this movement, you know, we go through the Civil War as a country. Then in 1906, finally comes the split between what we know as the Church of Christ a cappella churches, non-instrumental, and with the rest of the Restoration Movement. And, and so the a cappella churches left, and, and it's often talked about that they left because of instruments and, and music and that. But when someone ever leaves a church and the, ish, and the reason they give is never really the reason, it's just the final reason. And so what really it boiled down to is after the Civil War, there existed these things called missionary societies within the Restoration Movement. And they would have these black tie affairs to raise money, to send missionaries places. And then northern churches had these instruments and these organs that they could afford. And, and, and in 1895 in Gainesville, Texas, there was a missionary black tie affair. And that was the final straw. 
They said, all of these churches in the South where your brethren down here are suffering and are in need, and you're having these lavish black tie affairs, and you're buying these instruments, and they finally made the split. And so, and so part of our history of this unity movement and restoration is the Acapella Church of Christ, and they leaned heavy on reading scripture that there weren't any instruments in the early church in their worship. And then from 1927 to 1968, uh, there's... Uh, the restoration movement continues on and there's disciples of Christ and there's Christian churches within it. And Christian churches tended to lean heavy towards the restoration and the essential of, of scripture and Christ and the disciples of Christ leaned heavier on unity and ecumenism. And, and because they lean towards wanting to be ecumenical, meaning uh, work with other Christians like Presbyterians and Catholics and Anglicans and Baptists and Methodists, that in 1968, they put together uh, a design for disciples of Christ. And that was 50 years ago now. They put this design together to give us language of a denomination without being a denomination. So it's denominational-ish, Right. And, and, and so we created a regional and general structure and gave them zero authority to do anything over the local congregation. And, and what that did was the final breaking point for those who were more restorationist saying there's no denominations in the New Testament. And so 68 became another dividing point. And, and really since then, they've been holding on to these three different strands within the restoration movement. And yet we all have the same DNA and heritage. Now, us as First Christian Church of the Beaches, we still kind of stand in tension between those who identify as independent Christian churches and the disciples of Christ. While we're in the disciples of Christ, because that's where we've been located, we also identify strongly as an independent congregation without any uh, denominational authority really standing over us, leading both towards restoration, but also towards understanding unity within the body. So we, we try and hold those things in tension as a church. That's part of our DNA. And, and really, we used to, disciples like to say, unity is our polar star. And, and, that's, and that's great, but if we understand that man-made unity will never actually happen, because Scripture says unity comes from Christ, and his prayer is to God, that God will make unity happen among the believers. I prefer to stand on that we are Christians only, but we know we're not the only Christians. And so we can rest in that place and then we go to the New Testament and the Old Testament. The scripture is our authority for guiding our lives. And that's where we get today. We get to this point in the New Testament. Last week, we were just at the day of Pentecost. Peter preached, the Holy Spirit came down. Peter preached to the masses in Jerusalem. Everybody heard in their own language. And it said that 3,000 were added that day. So there was 120 going into that day. 3,000 were added that day. That's 3,120. And then what we're about to read now tells us exactly what happens next. And so let's pick up there in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day 
those who were being saved. And in this, in these five verses, six verses here, we get four strands of DNA that the church, every spirit-filled church has held onto since the very beginning. That all spirit-filled churches are learning churches. That they're loving churches. That they are worshiping churches and that they are witnessing churches. Every church has this DNA, this background as to who we are, yet each different church has a dominant trait that they lean on. And then depending on where you locate yourself within the church and and where your heart is, you may think that, that the church is more dominant in one area than someone else. But every church filled with the Holy Spirit has these four strands of DNA because it was so at the very beginning, because this is our heritage. And so the first one, a a learning church, we see it in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 3,120 people gather at the feet of the apostles, submitting to them and their authority. And later it'll tell us that they were doing signs and wonders and miracles, all of which they were doing, which was authenticating their teaching and their authority and leadership of this new church. But there they were listening. People were hungry for the knowledge of God. Tell me more about the love Jesus has for us because he died on the cross. We killed him on the cross and then he raised from the dead so I could be right with God. Tell me more about this Jesus. I want to know more about the nature of God. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, for us, We don't have the apostles here to teach us in person. If you did, I would step out of the way and someone else would preach. Peter could come take my spot. I'm okay with that. My My ego is big enough, but, you know, it's also small enough to recognize Peter, the apostle, is here to preach. I'll move out of the way. But what we have, we have been given the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. And that the New Testament then, as for us in 2019, is to be recognized as authoritative teaching about Jesus Christ, about the church, about who we are and understanding God's will and discerning and being obedient to Jesus's commands. And and so for us, we have to devote ourselves to the teaching of the scripture. Just as the early church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, we need to devote ourselves to the teachings in scripture. For if we ignore scripture, we're really ignoring part of who we are. And we won't really be able to see in the mirror whose we are. And one thing to note that's often come up, though, about learning in churches is that the Holy Spirit doesn't disdain theology. Rather, the Holy Spirit relishes in it in the devoting of the, of the teaching of the apostles. It, we don't have to go into multi-syllabic, five-syllable words to be able to describe theology, but we go to the teaching of the apostles to understand God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's all theology is. It doesn't have to be big language. But for us to be able to say that Jesus died on the cross for me and saved me from my sins so I'm right with God, you just spoke theology. And the Holy Spirit doesn't disdain it because it's learning and it's growing and it allows us to witness to what Jesus has done. 
The other strand of DNA that we, that, that's brought up here is, is a loving church. See, we can read in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. And then later we see, and then, and all who believed in verse 44 were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And there's this understanding, this Greek word koinonia, which is this community, this common life that's brought up that begins being spoken about in Acts about this new community of followers that they called themselves followers of the way. And, and it, koinonia, this common life, it, it expresses what we share in together which is God. But it also expresses what we share out, outward together, which is generosity. See, the Greek word that means common life together, this koinonia that describes the early church in Greek is also the root word for generosity in Greek, which is koinonikos. Generosity comes in this new community in the way it's talked about. Now, a question I often get asked as a pastor, well, the early church, they sold all they had and shared as they had in need. How is it then that we're allowed to have possessions as part of the church today? And the answer is that it was neither universal nor permanent. See, we'll find out as we continue to read in Acts that not everyone in the church sold all they had. As part of it, we can even read here that they still met in homes. So people still had property so that they could meet together and such. But some were called to sell everything. Just as Jesus encountered the rich young ruler and told him to sell everything and follow me. Yet that wasn't his same answer to everyone else who came to him. It was neither universal nor permanent. But for some are called to it and others aren't. John writes... The Apostle John writes this. He says, if there is a brother or sister in need, but we do not share, how can we claim God's love dwells in us? See, the Apostle John wants us to note that generosity and loving and caring is at the heart of this new community. It's very part of our DNA. As I said in offering that we had just gone through a devastating hurricane and our response was to think of those who had still less than us. Or tonight, that you're going to go and sacrifice an evening because it's going to drop below 40 degrees and we're going to open our doors to those who are without shelter in our community so that they can have a safe, warm place to sleep. And we're going to host a cold night shelter. This generosity, this giving of oneself when others are in need is at the very core of the church of this community, of who we are in Christ. Everyone called, everyone is called to be generous within the church. Now, this church was also a worshiping church. So it's a learning church, it's a loving church, but it was also a worshiping church. As it, it, When it says here in verse 42, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, they're talking about praying with one another, And the breaking of bread isn't a mealtime per se. Breaking of bread, as we'll see as we go through Acts, every time Luke writes it this way, it is mentioning the Lord's Supper. And so for the longest time, as Restoration Movement churches, we wouldn't have communion. We wouldn't have the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't have the Eucharist. We would have the breaking of the loaf. 
because we believed in calling things by Bible names. And so we had breaking of the loaf. And it's something we still do every Sunday. In fact, after I get done preaching, Pastor Chris is going to come up here and he's going to lead us in, in this breaking of this loaf, of this gathering for worship. It also tells us that they still day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, receive food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Showing us that their worship was both formal and informal. They would go to the temple and they would meet in homes. That there was no one prescription for worship, but rather it was a daily act done by those in community together. And that it was also joyful that they were glad and it was reverent that they were generous. Worshiping together as a community is part of who we are. Imagine being church together, but never gathering to worship together. It would seem strange, wouldn't it? And, and one of the things, if you, if you come here more than once, generally one of the things you miss when you leave is the breaking the loaf together. And it's one of the reasons we do it every Sunday, because we recognize that it's part of who we are and where we came from. And there's something important about it, that we get to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ every time we come to the table. And we get reminded that we are broken, but Jesus saves. And we praise God for that. And then, and then it tells us that our DNA is that we're a witnessing church because he ends by saying, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, we know it was a witnessing church because we wouldn't be here in 2019 if they didn't witness back in 33. And so as they gathered together and they sold their possessions and they worshiped together and they listened to the apostles' teachings, remember, it's still Pentecost. It was the Holy Spirit had come down. Jerusalem's filled with people. And now there's 3,120 people in this city gathering together, selling their stuff, caring for one another, breaking bread daily, going to temple for prayers. And people are saying, what has gotten into you? What are you doing? And because they've sat at the feet of the apostles and the Holy Spirit has filled them, they said, Loving my Jesus. Learning more about Jesus and praising God for the salvation we have. They witnessed. But notice, they get zero credit for the growth of the church. If when we read Acts, we see that the 3,000 were added to them and it was added by God. And day by day, the Lord added to their number. Because there's power in witnessing. See, he, he ends with this. Those who were being saved. One little note here. You cannot be added to the church without being saved. You also cannot be saved without being added to a church. So if you find yourself without a local congregation to be a part of, find one now. Even if you're watching us online right now, or you're visiting with us, whether it's us or someone else, God wants you in community. Because the way the New Testament talks about church is threefold. It talks about church universal as the whole body of believers. It talks about church in Jerusalem, church in Ephesus, church in Antioch, and it's, it encompasses all the believers in that city. But then it also talks about church in homes. Recognizing that part of our DNA 
is to be together in fellowship, worshiping, loving, witnessing, and learning. It's who we are at our core. And when we see this in the scriptures, when we get home today, because of Jesus, we stand in the mirror and we look and we say, I am my father's child. I am the beloved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks for calling us your beloved, for sending Jesus to die on the cross, shed his blood so that we may be forgiven and put right with you. Lord, we thank you for the apostles' teaching found in the New Testament so that we may use it as a guide for knowing where we came from and who you call us to be. May we be ever reminded that at our core, you want us to learn, to love, to worship and witness so that others can go in their mirrors and say, I am my father's child. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.